Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Martin Chemnitz in Caridian. We'll be picking up on page, looks like page 82. And of course, we've been on this rather lengthy section, subtitled Faith. And we're about to end that, about to jump into predestination or election of those who are to be saved. So we'll jump into question 173, the new material as best as I can tell, right after our invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, in question 172, just by way of very brief review, we mentioned how important it is that we understand the gospel with those exclusive particles apart from work, etc., apart from our works, apart from the works of the law, etc., because then the gospel is not conditioned upon us in any way, but is solely dependent upon God. And the question doesn't become, or the question is no longer, you know, do I believe, which is like having faith in my faith? <laughs> See how that works? Like, well, I believe, I believe, so I'm going to heaven. It's no longer that, but with our eyes set on Christ, the question is rather, does God lie? The answer there is very clear. No, he doesn't. And that takes the weakness of our faith in this fides reflexivo, where we start having faith in our faith. It takes it all out of the question, and our eyes are set directly on God who does not lie, and thus we can have certainty, and we can have a godly assurance in that word of God. Okay, then on to 173. But you will find many who, either imbued with false faith or bewitched by Epicurean persuasion. Remember, the Epicurean persuasion, I'll try to just describe it shorthand, is the idea of God likes to forgive, I like to sin, this is a match made in heaven. That's kind of the Epicurean persuasion. So once more, you will find many who either imbued with false faith or bewitched by Epicurean persuasion, nevertheless harbor a certain assurance of salvation. Answer. We do not speak of heretic or heretic faith, which is presumed either without or contrary to Holy Scripture. For this doubtless neither justifies nor saves. And we also do not speak of Epicurean opinion, which promises itself impunity in hardened impenitence. For the sentence of divine judgment is that they, or excuse me, they that do such things shall not possess the kingdom of God including Galatians 5.21. And that section in Galatians 5 really is just that, a description of those who impenitently persist in sins. There can be no faith 
where that exists. Or in the language that you heard in the book of Concord, the Holy Spirit is cast out by impenitent persistence in sin. Chemnitz continues, but we say of true and justifying faith, whose character and function we have described a little earlier, that it ought not hesitate, but conclude in firm trust that it will be for it just as it believes according to the word of God. Okay, So there's a true faith and a false faith. There's a true assurance and a false assurance. Make sense? Great. 174. Yes, please. Yeah. You don't want to turn them off by you want to leave the door open, but you also don't want to hundred percent agree with it either. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my my favorite response now your circumstance to that person may be different, so that has to be taken into account. But my favorite response when those, whether they're of Jewish persuasion or not, say that we all worship the same God or they worship the same God I do. It's good to quip something to the effect of, oh, so your God was nailed to a cross about 2,000 years ago. Is that correct? And of course, no Jewish person, no uh, Muslim, no Hindu, no nebulous uh, 21st century spiritualist is going to affirm that. And so you can say, well, I think we do have different gods then. Yeah, yeah. And of course, in those answers we give, it's always good when it's centered on Jesus. I mean, you could, of course, say, oh, so your God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? I mean, that's a distinction, and it's a helpful one, but there it just sort of becomes a quibble about God, whereas the other one really focuses down on, is Christ God or not? Which is the the fundamental issue. His crucifixion, his resurrection, these are the fundamental things. Is he who he says he is or not? I mean, similar, you could take a page out of uh, C.S. Lewis there and kind of the, what is it, Lord, liar, or lunatic. You could take that kind of argument if you wanted. When people say that Jesus is a good teacher or a good prophet, you know, saying, uh, C.S. Lewis says, um, you know, he does not leave that option open to us. <laughs> right? He's one of those three. got um, hung up on his guilt. And I didn't quite know what to do with that, but I thought, well, if that guilt is there, then we need to look. All the better to direct to Christ. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Exactly right. Okay. So then on to 174. But what bases and what sure and firm reasons does faith have for its confidence? One. The promise of divine grace is firm and sure for all to whom it is imputed by faith, Romans 4.16. And it was confirmed by divine oath. This is a big deal. Confirmed by divine oath for this reason, 
that all who flee to it and lay hold on it as a holy anchor might have firm, sure, and solid comfort. Hebrews 6, 17 through 20. So I'm just going to focus on one part here, the divine oath. This is something that recurs in the scriptures, and it is breathtakingly astonishing. Because God should simply be taken at his word. If you or me were God, we would just say it and expect to be taken at our word. But the fact that God will swear by himself... It also shows, I mean, it shows the goodness and properly understood the humility of God, that he's willing to condescend to such profound assurance. He's willing to say, I know you don't believe me. I swear by myself that it is true. Ah. So that he has mercy even on those who meet his simple word with, rejection or doubt or uncertainty. So that God swears an oath is one of the most unbelievable things. I mean, amongst a whole panoply of unbelievable things in the scriptures, just unimaginable and amazing and wonderful because God, who is the greatest of all, is the the most humble of all and uh, the most innocent of all and just beautiful and wonderful and good. So you have that Highlighted here by Chemnitz in a fantastic way, confirmed by divine oath that we might have certainty. Okay, two, it is the nature and character of faith that it does not hesitate, but approaches God in strong pleroforia, or full assurance, and firm trust. And then a whole slew of scriptures cited here. And the faith of the saints in this name is commended in Scripture. All right, and then again, like three citations given. So I'm not going to go through all those. But this then is why faith should be confident, because that's the definition of faith. (laughs) I mean, I know that sounds like an obvious point, but faith isn't yes and no. Faith is yes, right? God in Christ is yes. There's no yes and no with Christ. There's no yes and no with faith. Paraphrasing St. Paul's argument here. Christ is God's yes to us in terms of our salvation, our standing, and faith is our amen, our yes, our amen, amen, let it be so, yes, yes, let it be so, in response. So the very nature of faith is that it does not doubt. All right? Yes, sir. I'm just reminded of the verse, uh, Lord, I believe, help me with my unbelief. Yeah, sure. Not sure. to go down a rabbit hole, but mm, that, that implies some doubt. Yeah, sure. So we've got a wide sense of faith there and a narrow sense of faith here. Or a wide sense of our experience of faith as we believe in the Lord. We're constantly plagued with doubts. And we're constantly pla- plagued with um, all kinds of doubts, whether it's doubting ourself. That is to say, like well, on account of my sins or something like that, I've put myself outside of God's grace, or doubting God and saying, you know, maybe he doesn't exist or or maybe he isn't good or something like this, right? So our faith is plagued with all manner of doubts. That's faith in the wide sense. But faith proper as that gift that God gives us doesn't contain any doubt at all. That's the narrow sense of faith, right? 
Yeah. So you can see that distinction. Scripture just talking both ways. What a wonderful prayer you highlight. One I find myself praying all the time. I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. We recognize that weakness within us. So a recognition here, though, that God gives faith, and the very essence of faith, though, is certainty, because God said it and God does not lie, faith, properly speaking, is certain. Okay, three, in order that this confidence might be made the firmer and surer, God himself sealed the righteousness of faith by his sacraments. Some quotations given um, here, but I just want to give you the full grammar. So, in order that this confidence might be made the firmer and surer, God himself sealed the righteousness of faith by his sacraments and through his Holy Spirit, whom he, for this reason, pours out into the hearts of the believers. And more scripture references given. So the point here, then, is that not only does God promise in his word, but he also gives us the sacraments. And those sacraments seal that word of God unto us individually and personally, if you want to think about it that way. So it's one thing that God proclaims that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's one thing, and it can be believed, to be sure. It's another thing when God baptizes you into that kingdom, into his family, that becomes a thing that can be trusted in itself. So we can trust God's word, however general or however specific, but we can also trust God's actions toward us as individuals. So I am baptized, therefore I know that all that the scripture says about baptism, God has done for me. That whole hymn, God's Own Child, I Gladly Say It, is a good exercise and meditation on that reality that we take the, the promises in regard to baptism that Scripture gives us and we apply them to ourselves because God is the one who has baptized us. So baptism now saves you. I must be saved because God baptized me. Baptism is a washing away of sins. My sins must be washed away because God has baptized me. Baptism is so being so united with Christ that I've actually and in fact been buried with him. His tomb is my tomb. And just as he is raised, so I am already spiritually raised, and soon enough my body will be raised as well. Because God has baptized me. So you see how that works. And baptism has this wonderful, beautiful strength that it's done once and for all. And there's a complementary strength in the Lord's Supper, that it's repeated. So we have both bases bases cleared here, or uh, covered here. Um, We have the one act for your whole life, and then we have this recurrent act. It's beautiful. Beautiful. So... Yeah, in order that confidence may be made, uh, excuse me, confidence might be made the firmer and sure, God Himself sealed the righteousness of faith by His sacraments, and through His Holy Spirit, whom He 
for this reason, pours out into the hearts of believers. So, you know, again, just to speak maybe a little more broadly and generally than covenants here, the Holy Spirit gives us the sacraments. He comes to us through the sacraments. He's given to us himself through the sacraments. Um, we receive the Holy Spirit, and then the Holy Spirit testifies within our own hearts that we're Christians, testifies within our own hearts. And this, this again, is, you know, spiritual health does not mean walking around thinking, um, you know, every moment of every day, I'm the most miserable sinner there is. I've got a filthy conscience. I'm filthy and unclean. That, that's not really spiritual health. I mean, there are times in which, so you remember the reading in, uh, well, some of you do, earlier this morning, um, but otherwise, it's the Formula of Concord, um, again, Solid Declaration, Article 2 on the free will. And what you see there is a description. It's very apt by the authors of the formula, saying sometimes, as a Christian, you're strong in the faith, and sometimes you're weak. Sometimes you're going to have a troubled conscience. Sometimes you're going to be ready to pl- pray those penitential psalms. But sometimes you're strong in the faith, and sometimes... It's like your conscience isn't burdened and weighed down. And St. Paul will even talk about that. I know nothing against myself. I'm not thereby justified. There's one who judges me, Christ. Okay? But I, for my part, have a clean conscience. And Paul will say, I have a clean conscience towards you. As he leaves a congregation or as he interacts with the congregation after the fact, he says, look, I conducted myself properly in your midst. I've got a clean conscience. So having a clean conscience is a great thing. So we can go through, that's, that's all I'm trying to say is, I think somewhere in the 20th century we got this idea that to be an uber-Lutheran or to be a true Orthodox Lutheran, you have to constantly be whipping yourself that you're a poor, miserable sinner walking around with a guilty conscience, just, you know, breathlessly gasping for, you know, oh, but only Jesus kind of thing. Uh, it's just, no, that's not, that, that is unexperience of the Christian faith and a fine experience of the Christian faith and probably one every mature Christian goes through from time to time. But there are other experiences in the Christian faith as well. It's, a, it's sort of the whole diversity of maturing in Christ. And, and one of those experiences, maybe even the dominant experience, is that of the Holy Spirit within us and that of not doubting ourselves and not doubting our faith. Um, I know I believe in Christ. Can I say the creed? Yeah. Do I know it's true? Do I assent to it that it's true? Yeah. Do I throw myself on the mercy of Christ? Absolutely. I'm thereby a Christian. I'm not going to sit there and doubt or second-guess that as if it were some sort of pious activity. right? I've got, it. I've got the testimony of the Holy Spirit within me that I'm a Christian. We all do. Sometimes under acute t- uh, temptation, like what Luther would call onfectong or um, tentatio in Latin, the idea of acute spiritual attack, sometimes you lose that sense within you. Sometimes you don't have, or you can't hear, or you doubt that sort of inner testament of the Holy Spirit that you're a Christian. And when you doubt that, yeah, it's very good. You need to get outside of yourself. You need to turn externally to the sacraments. That's the whole extranos outside of us and the certainty outside of us. All of that's absolutely true. But if you're not in some spiritual crisis, if you're not in some onfectong or tentatio or attack, um, it's absolutely natural to realize that there's an intranos, an inside of us aspect of the faith, and that's the testimony of the Holy Spirit. I agree with, the, I agree with God's word, that it's right. I agree with it, that it's good. Confess Christ. Have a clean conscience about that. Right? So I think this is just a wonderful insight into that sort of 
broader view here, and, and again, very specifically in Chemnitz, um, that God sends his Holy Spirit into us through the word and the sacraments in order that this confidence that we have in Christ might be made firmer and surer. That's what the Holy Spirit does within us. All right. Uh, four then, and this is a short one. Scripture clearly and expressly rebukes and condemns doubt. So recognizing that doubt isn't a virtue, doubt is sin. And that's, a, that's an important thing because I, I think sometimes we say, well, everyone doubts or I doubt, and we might even say it like it's some sort of boast in integrity. It's not really that. Not objectively, not properly. Objectively and properly, doubt is sin. Why, why wouldn't you believe God when he speaks? Why wouldn't you believe him absolutely and take him above your own reason and senses and everything else? I think that this is where sometimes, I know I've misread Jesus and, and I'm like slowly getting this cleared away from my soul by God's word. And that is sometimes Jesus, when he's asking his disciples, like, how on earth don't you believe? <laughs> it's a genuine thing. It's not some rhetorical, mean-spirited condemnation. Like, he truly doesn't get it. You know, there's a God, don't you? <laughs> you know that this is what he said, don't you? How is it that you don't believe? How is it that you're not certain? So I think, of course, Christ being sinless just sees it in such a pure and simple way. And we can be cleansed by that and strengthened by that. That if God says that it's true, why don't I just believe it? Grasp hold of it like a child and just let it be. Let it go. So I think this is just a, another wonderful line that Scripture clearly and expressly rebukes and condemns doubt. Kind of the other side of the coin of that second point, that it is the very nature of faith not to hesitate but to approach God in full assurance. Okay, and then fifth, and I'll pause to see if you have any Thoughts on these. Fifth, the doctrine regarding doubt is an old and damned error of the Pharisees. So the doctrine regarding doubt, if you remember to last week, this is a feature of post-Reformation Roman Catholicism that doubting God's word is a virtue. Doubting your salvation is a virtue. They see it as a kind of humility. We talked about it last week as showing that it's actually a kind of pride that if God says, you are mine, I have saved you, and you go, I don't know, I think I'm going to doubt that because it sounds more humble. You're actually calling God a liar, so it's not a virtue at all. So this is what Chemnitz is referring to when he talks about the doctrine regarding doubt. It actually goes far earlier, as he's pointing out, than his contemporaries in the 16th century. The doctrine regarding doubt is an old and damned error of the Pharisees. For Matthew 9, the scribes accused Christ of blasphemy because he commanded the paralytic Tharsine to take heart or to be of good and serene mind. And he's got verse 3, and then thus Luke 7, when Christ forgave the woman and commanded her to go in peace, the Pharisees muttered that it was blasphemy, verse 49, and it is the same error later revived by the Novatians. 
Okay, so, in other words, Christ says that sins are forgiven absolutely. And of course, only God can do that, and that's what our play on the text usually is. But viewing it from a different angle, why is it that they're saying that that's so blasphemous? Because we have to be uncertain as to whether or not God forgives sins. We have to be doubtful until he sort of does it at the judgment seat or some such thing. So that idea of doubting and questioning and wondering rather than having assurance and firm and confident faith is contrasted here in these biblical texts just as it is in the late Roman Catholic Church. Okay, so let's, uh, let's entertain any thoughts or questions there might be. Along the lines of this, um, is this a... Is this thing on? Oh, you can go for it, and I'll just try to paraphrase. Uh... Okay, yeah, well, um, along the lines of this, um, um, the doubt and the faith being certain, and the, the Psalm 38, um, he says at the end of it, make haste to help me, O Lord of my salvation. So he's clearly in peril. There's a distance. But it's not a doubt that he has He has a Lord. Mm-hmm. Salvation. Mm-hmm. Do not forsake me, O Lord. So mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> he's still in entrusting himself to yeah. the Lord. Yeah, very similar thing throughout the Psalms, but of course also woven into our Liturgy setting three, create in me a clean heart, O God, that, that whole idea of take not thy Holy Spirit away from me. I mean, there David in Psalm 51, it's, it's, it's a psalm written after his adulterous and murderous affair, Bathsheba and Uriah. And he full on recognizes that God would be just in damning him, in removing the Holy Spirit and damning him. And so he's praying that God would act in mercy, not in justice. It's not exactly uncertainty because he's addressing the prayer to God. Right? He's taking it exactly where it, should, where it should go. And then as is often the case, um, the Psalms tend to resolve either in faithfulness toward God or an outright statement of who God is and what God's done. Sometimes God even turns and speaks to the psalmist, as is often the case. So, uh, yeah, that, but I'm glad you brought up that example because it, it, again, just sort of gives more um, for us to chew on that, yeah, on account of our sins, you know, especially extremely grievous sins, we shouldn't take God's grace for granted. We shouldn't create, you know, be presumptuous in our sinning. And we shouldn't speak to God in a presumptuous way. We should speak to him in a, in a humble way. But to make this really concrete, it's where when you confess your sins and then receive that absolution, you have to believe that absolution here on earth just as if it were said to you in heaven. Because that's what Christ has given. He's given that office. He's given that forgiveness of sins to be spoken through that office. He promises to forgive all who are penitent, all who repent. So 
those promises of God are what we grasp hold of. But it's not to say that there isn't some sort of process or reality that we go through as we recognize and come to terms with the sins we've committed against God and what would in fact be just for God to do. You know, I think as Christians, we feel our sins even more acutely, not only because of the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit, but because of the status that God has given us as his children and as his sons. We realize that we're not our own, we're members of his family. And so when we go through some great grievous fall, we don't just affect ourselves, we besmirch the name of the family, besmirch the name of God. Um, and that, that kind of, I mean, it obviously lends a, a gravitas to our sins, but we realize that and recognize that. And so we, we cry out to God as a, as a merciful father, as the liturgy says too, you know, almighty God, merciful father. Um, when we confess to God, we don't confess to an angry judge or to a transcendent, utterly transcendent God who knows nothing of our weakness. We confess to our merciful father who knows our weaknesses and who is slow to anger and quick to forgive. Okay, anything else? Yes, no? Please. Okay, okay. Fair enough. So then on to 175. But many statements of Scripture are raised in objection, which seem to attribute justification to the renewal and good works of the reborn. Therefore, Point out the sources and bases of the explanations. Answer to the challenge. The chief objections can be simply and thoroughly explained and refuted when this distinction is observed and applied, namely that some scripture statements properly speak of free justification and some deal with related matters. For first, there are certain scripture passages in which there is, as it were, the seat of the doctrine of free justification. For example, those that speak of the merit and cause of justification, which is solely the obedience of Christ and the grace of God. Likewise, those that speak of application, how and by what means this grace of God and obedience and merit of Christ is applied, apprehended and received, namely through faith in the promise. And those that tell us that righteousness or justification consists in free reconciliation and the forgiveness of sins, solely for Christ's sake. We have spoken above of these passages. So again, I think he's referring to the exclusive particles, although any of the passages that fit could be in mind. The true, proper, and genuine statement of the doctrine of free justification is to be drawn and established on the basis of these passages. Second, some scripture statements speak of the perfect and complete righteousness of the law. If a man render it with the perfection that is prescribed in the law, he shall without doubt be justified and saved by it, as Christ and Paul grant. And then there are statements to that effect in Matthew, Luke, and Romans. But since we cannot attain that perfection in this life, we need another righteousness which is revealed in the gospel. Third, many passages of scripture do not teach how we are justified before God, but describe the nature and character of those who have already been justified by faith, namely that they bring forth 
good works. Okay, and so I really think that that's the key. I mean, far be it for me to accuse Chemnitz of being too wordy here, but I think that that's really the key. There are some passages that, so if you want to be simplistic about it, take his first point. There are some passages in the scriptures that talk about justification proper. They use the exclusive particles. But there are other passages that just talk about the whole of the Christian life. There are other passages that don't particularly have justification in view as a, as a subset of the Christian life, but the whole of the Christian life in view. The nature and character of those who have already been justified by faith. Okay, fourth. Elsewhere in Scripture, the signs or outward marks are described, namely love and good works. Again, I know we don't like this, but it's just we need to get over ourselves. Love and good works, and specifically Christian love, love toward Christ, love toward the brothers in Christ. These are all marks of faith. It's just what they are. I mean, you can be led to doubt them through, again, spiritual attack, onfectung, tentatio, and then you can sort of like vacate and say, right, it's all Christ. That's all I have. No problem there. Um, but just in general, run-of-the-mill, everyday Christianity, you have love for Christ. You have love for the saints. That's evident. I mean, that didn't come from nowhere. <laughs> it's in you because the Holy Spirit is in you. So... Once more, elsewhere in scriptures, the signs or outward marks are described, namely love and good works, which attest true faith, a posteriori, as it were, and by which those who are truly justified by faith are distinguished and discerned from those who, preserving in sins in the Epicurean conviction of impunity, fashion for themselves a false notion of faith and righteousness. And this is such a key point especially in our day and age where just lawlessness is everywhere, Christians are going to look like Christians. Unbelievers are going to look like unbelievers. There should absolutely be a difference between you and your life and your pagan neighbor and his life. I know that that sounds scandalous to say because of like a century of false teaching, but this is literally Christianity 101. This is literally you are the salt of the world. You are the light of the world. A city put on a hill cannot be hidden, etc., etc. You are... You are the aroma of Christ. They are the aroma of sin. It's just Christianity 101. It's gotten obscured by a bunch of nonsense in the 20th century. We should look different. And in fact, we do look different. We especially look different when it comes to the first commandment. (laughs) Does one who rejects Christ fear, love, and trust God in any sense? Zero sense. Do we who love Christ fear, love, and trust God? And Yeah, absolutely. Now, is it only begun in us? Yeah. Is it performed and experienced in great weakness? Yeah. But that's the difference between light and darkness. That's the difference between heaven and hell. It's the difference between the devil and Christ. <laughs> the, difference, the difference between a zero and a one is infinite in that sense. Right? Entirely different. Completely different. Mutually exclusive. We want to regain that. Because that really helps with our, I mean, not only does it help us with our own identity, but it helps us with perceiving the world rightly. It helps us with perceiving evangelism rightly, too. Because once we realize the the good things that we are and have, these things have been given to us, of course, by grace, apart from our own merit or worthiness. But once we realize we have these things, now sharing the gospel becomes easy. And sharing the gospel becomes, and it doesn't just become this formulaic, Jesus died for you. Okay, did did those magic words actually work? 
it becomes a whole lifestyle thing. It becomes a whole all-encompassing thing of you have hope, you have a different perspective. You're able, I mean, part of that, sure, is you're able to acknowledge your sins and confess them and realize you're forgiven and be okay. That's a, that's a huge difference. Does an unbeliever want to confess their sins? Absolutely not. Deny, 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 and if absolutely necessary, shut up and sort of like plead the cosmic fifth. But we can stand before God every Sunday morning and say, most merciful God, right? Almighty God, most merciful Father, whatever the setting happens to be. And we can confess our sins without, uh, without embarrassment to him. That's a huge difference. It's a huge difference. Okay, I think I've belabored that enough for now. It's teasing. Okay, so maybe just... Uh, Yeah, maybe just once more with this fourth point. Elsewhere in Scripture, the signs or outward marks are described, namely love and good works, which attest true faith, a posteriori, as it were, and by which those who are truly justified by faith are distinguished and discerned from those who preserving in sin, persevering in sins, in the Epicurean conviction of impunity, fashion for themselves a false notion of faith and righteousness. This is the thrust of the whole epistle of John, so 1 John, and likewise of James and of Peter. And here belong and a whole bunch of citations from Jesus and Paul. All right, so there are a ton of scriptures to this effect. Fifth, some passages of scripture teach not how or through or because of what, we obtain salvation and eternal life, but that God wants to reward and compensate both in this life and in that which is to come the good works of those who have now already obtained justification and the inheritance of life eternal freely through faith, uh, excuse me, life eternal freely through faith for Christ's sake. So the point here being that there are scriptures that simply talk about, yeah, okay, other, certain scriptures say you're justified by grace of faith apart from works. Then other scriptures say, yeah, but your works are noticed by God and will be rewarded by God. Doesn't mean, are you, does that mean that you're saved by your works? No. Does it mean that your works are unimportant? Absolutely not. God takes note of your works. And this is what Christ teaches. This is what's so wonderful and what, what's so needed because otherwise we fall into the nihilism of our age and nothing I do matters. Whether I sin or do good, it just doesn't matter. Um, but Christ says that if you give, if you do even such a small thing, thoughtless thing, as giving a cup of cold water to a little child in his name, you will by no means lose your reward. So every single action is imbued with meaning, cosmic meaning, because God is watching and he's going to reward in this life and in that which is to come. So this really has nothing to do with salvation. In fact, taking these passages and trying to confuse it with salvation will lead you into great error. All right, sixth, some statements of Scripture do not properly speak of the remission of guilt and eternal punishment, which is given alone by grace through faith for Christ's sake, but they deal with remission or reduction of temporal punishments, which comes for Christ's sake to those who are truly and earnestly penitent. So the key there being temporal punishments. So God sometimes 
permits us to face temporal consequences for what we've done. Sometimes that's baked into the sin itself. Sometimes he withholds those to one degree or another so that there isn't a temporal consequence or isn't a severe temporal consequence to what's been done. That's his prerogative as our father. If I I discipline my children for every last thing they did wrong, that's all I'd ever do. (laughs) And likewise, God unto us. So the, the point being, he lets something slide. He doesn't reckon things against us. And th- what we're talking about now is the temporal side. Eternally, we're in, we're in Christ. Eternally, our sins are forgiven. But you even see this throughout the Old Testament where God will take the life of someone. Does that mean that they're damned? No. You know, you think of, uh, is it, wait, who is the guy? I'm forgetting his name now. Maybe one of you know who reached out and grabbed the Ark of the Covenant when it was falling. What? Did you, does anybody know the name? You just recognize the story. Yeah. Okay. Do we think that that person's in hell? <laughs> no. God struck him dead for touching the Ark because he said, don't touch the Ark. And yeah, that's a punishment. It's a temporal punishment to that man, and it's an example unto all the others that when God is speaking about this kind of thing, it's absolutely no messing around. And so, yeah, he suffered a temporal consequence, but not an eternal one. David, we believe David to be saved, rightfully so. David suffered the temporal consequence of the death of the illegitimate son that he had conceived in Bathsheba. So there's temporal consequence that comes, but not every adultery or fornication results in a child that's put to death by God. So there's different temporal punishments and removal of those punishments that's done by God's discretion as our Heavenly Father. And that's all this is stating. So you find all kinds of scriptures that talk about this. They don't have anything to do with justification. They have to do with a different aspect of the Christian life. If we try to blur those together with the doctrine of justification, we're going to end up in a mess. It's bad, bad reading of scripture, bad theology. All right, so that's sixth. I'm going to wrap it up here, um, and then with finally, that second to the last paragraph, I'm just going to read all the way through, and then we'll pause and see if you have reflections on any of these. Again, um, since we're finally just reminding ourselves that the initial challenge is this. Many statements of Scripture are raised in objection, which seem to attribute justification to the renewal and good works of the reborn, therefore point out the sources and bases of the explanation. So that's what we've been up to. There's a diversity of scripture. Not every scripture verse, I know this is hard to believe, is about justification. Finally, some scripture passages include exhortations to repentance and assurances that God is merciful to the penitent and wants to forgive sins. So Matthew 6, Isaiah 1 cited. But on what propitiation depends... And why God forgives sins, likewise, by what means the promise of remission is apprehended and applied, namely, by faith alone for Christ's sake, that is to be drawn from and set forth on the basis of the doctrine of the gospel. At this point in the examination, let the superintendents, remember the nature of this book? This is the examination of pastors. We're all supposed to know this stuff. Oh, would that this would return. At this point in the examination, let the superintendents put a number of scripture passages like that before the pastors, form arguments based on them, and test their explanations and solutions. 
So glorious. I mean, would that we had superintendents that would do that, because what a fantastic exercise. Uh, pastors like me could grow in our faith and understanding and knowledge, be tutored by men who have been doing it, you know, granted by God great wisdom and doing it for many years. What a blessing that would be. And then to be able to pass that on to others, what a blessing. But sadly, the church has uh, been fractured and lost much of this today. So again, just to summarize this final point before I see if you have any questions or reflections, the scripture about a whole diversity of angles on the Christian faith and the Christian life. The Christian life, holistically speaking, contains justification and sanctification. And we could even broaden that onto different angles, even if we ultimately find that all the broadening still fits under these two categories, so be it. Um, But you have, even maybe just most simply, the clear teaching of Scripture that we're justified apart from any of our works, we're saved apart from any of our works, But to be saved, one must endure many hardships and many things, many attacks of the devil, the world, and our sinful flesh. So there is, if you want to to think of it this way, a kind of paradoxical nature that, on the one hand, salvation is absolutely free. On the other hand, retaining that free gift may well cost you everything, and in a sense does. Whoever loses his life for my sake will gain it. And other quotations of Christ can be leveraged to that effect. All right, let me be silent for a moment. See if you have any thoughts, reflections, questions. One up here in the front. Did we give up on the mic, or are we going to do it anyway? It's working, great. It's not working in here, but it is working for the World Wide Web. Um, A question. I really appreciate that all of this about us being freed by faith, um, justified by faith, it is very freeing. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, going on to or asking a question about um, uh, C.S. Lewis's mere Christianity, mm. what about those people that are Christians but believe so heavily in works? Mm-hmm. You know, let's say other denominations that believe in works. I, I would see where that would bother them. You never know if you've done enough work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So, but are they saved? Yeah, so, um, if one believes in their own works, and that their own works are what gets them into heaven, that is a false faith and a false belief. So St. Paul says you're severed from grace, you who would be justified by the works of the law. So that's the Apostle of Christ, that's the Holy Scriptures, that's the pronouncement. So don't do it. <laughs> now, the simple fact, though, is also, is also true. And I think it's Chemnitz himself who, who maybe has a miniature catalog of this somewhere in his examine, his examination of the Council of Trent. Canons and decrees were put out, and then he critiques them via Scripture. I think it's somewhere in there that he has this small little section where he talks about some of the staunchest uh, supporters of, of Roman Catholic doctrine that you are justified in part by your works. And he talks about what they say on their deathbed. Because on their deathbed, it's a different tune. On their deathbed, one after another, it's, I am yours, save me. I have no hope but Christ. 
In Christ alone, I place my trust. Those kinds of statements. Those are Christians who are in doctrinal error. But that doctrinal error gets wiped away at the critical moment, obviously. I think there are many such Roman Catholics who sort of toe the line, who have been taught to misunderstand the scriptures, who have been taught to trust the church, and the church, quote-unquote, the Roman Catholic denomination, has got an error in this particular doctrine. There are many who go along with that, but in their heart of hearts, they're converted Christians, and they entrust themselves to Christ. And I expect to see many of them, even some who, you know, preach that we're justified by works to ultimately be in heaven along with us. So does that, does that help answer your question there? Yeah, yeah I just, you know, and, and what do they truly believe? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And that's where God alone knows um, whether they're entrusting themselves to him or whether they're going to stand before him trusting themselves and their work. There's even kind of a beautiful picture of this, the doctrine of justification. I mean, of course, it's very clear in the plain statement, the Proto-Evangelium in Genesis 3, where God says uh, to the serpent in the earshot of Adam and Eve that the, that the seed of the woman will come and crush your head. I mean, the gospel's right there because it's not like, okay, the works of the devil are going to be undone by a bunch of obedience and good works. They're going to be undone by Christ crushing the serpent's head. So it's already nascent there. But think uh, of the beauty. Remember Adam and Eve, as soon as they sin, they realize they're naked or their eyes are open to see that they're naked. And they immediately do what? Try to get fig leaves. We're going to eat some figs here in a minute. Try to get fig leaves and wrap it into, you know, a little bikini and everything. Um, but that's not going to cover their sins. The work of their own hands isn't going to cover their own nakedness, cover their own sins. So rather, how is their nakedness covered? When God slays an animal, we don't know what kind of animal. All the church fathers thought it was a lamb, obviously, but, or you know, a goat or something. They took the skins But be that as it may, an innocent dies, this animal dies, and its skins are fashioned by God to cover their nakedness. So right there you have the doctrine of justification. Is our nakedness going to be covered by the work of our own hands, the sewing together of fig leaves? No, it's going to be covered by God through the death of an innocent clothing us. And Of course, that's what it means to... Have Christ be the innocent be put to death and to be clothed in Christ, as those New Testament scriptures say. So the doctrine of justification goes all the way back to the very first gospel statement from God. This morning we read in the cat that God has blessed us with power to do things that we were not able to do Mm -hmm. in, in our salvation. Now this is where... In my background, I get messed up, and especially in my Catholic background, I believe that God blessed me um, with the power to do things I couldn't do, but at the same time, I got messed up because I believe that I had to continue to do these things I was blessed with to retain my salvation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just wonder if you can speak into that. Yeah, exactly right. So, I mean, God clearly does bless us with new movement, I mean, with a new heart with the new being, the new man within us, and with all kinds of new abilities and desires. And, 
And God even sometimes supernaturally blesses us. That's why he gives some to be pastors and evangelists and teachers. I mean, this is a statement that we're not, those aren't, those aren't like made by us. They're made by God. So these are, you know, God, God gives gifts. And then the diversity of the body of Christ, how there are, you know, we're not all feet or hands or mouths. There's a diversity of body. Those gifts all come from Christ, and that's true. So that's that part of it right on. But the other part of it, that you have to be doing these things to sort of sustain yourself in right relationship with God, that's one of the subtle ways that the devil and, of course, our flesh like to try to infiltrate the doctrine of justification, that our standing before God is apart from works. Yeah, but really, what if I blend my works in just a little bit? Um, that's the kind of idea there. So we, what we want to do is just chase that away and say, look, I could not do another good work my entire life. I could have all the good works that I've done before be counted by God to be nothing. I could literally come before him, as the scriptures say, as one who does not work. And I'm still going to be saved because salvation is completely independent of my working or lack of working or anything else, right? So that's, that's probably the key there when you're, you know, wrestling with those kinds of things. Of like, if I, don't, if I don't keep this up, I'm not keeping up my end of the bargain and God might close the door on me in finality. That's an intrusion of sanctification into justification. I want to push that out. Yeah. Okay, anything else? Um, I did a quick read on uh, the man who touched the ark, and uh, oh yeah, thanks. His name is U Z Z A H. Uzzah. Uzzah. Yeah, okay. that's what, that's where I got confused. I was like Uzziah, but that's the Uzzah. king in the days of he Isaiah was, or whatever. He was right? the son of uh, Abinadab, and the ark had been staying. Uh, this is in Second Samuel chapter six. Ah, yeah. He, the ark had been there, so. One of the problems is the Levites were supposed to only move it, and he was not a Levite. Uh, yeah. And it also points out that uh, it shows that the oxen stumbled, mm-hmm. but the ark did not touch the ground. So he was. Mm. So it's mm-hmm. an interesting ah, story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm glad you pointed out those details. Thank you for that. And I thought of. Uh, Ananias and Sapphira too whether they they were struck dead remember they're in uh, Acts chapter 5 yeah, exactly we you know you wonder yeah, yeah we wonder if they're saved or not I it's hard to know but they certainly faced a, a temporal consequence right yeah for lying to the Holy Spirit yeah and I think I think so, a sobering moment a sobering moment that we, we realize that our God is that God and so we want to conduct ourselves with integrity before him and not lie to the Holy Spirit. Okay, anything else? Anything else on faith or justification? Okay, so turning now to predestination or election, we'll just get maybe the first one done here. Predestination or election of those who are to be saved, page 85. Question 176, is this doctrine to be set before the hearers or necessary to be known? Which is so great, especially if you remember this from a pastoral angle. Should we really bother with this? <laughs> does, it, does it more do more harm than it does good? Because true enough, through the abuses, the doctrine of predestination and election often cause people to doubt 
which is the exact opposite of their God-given purpose and intention. Um, as we'll see, predestination and election is really gospel for Christians. It's gospel for the church. Is this doctrine to be set before the hearers or necessary to be known? Answer, since most Holy Scripture touches the doctrine of this article, namely that God before the beginning of time and the creation of the world predestined the elect in Christ unto salvation and life eternal, etc. Not only once, and that lightly or in passing, but teaches, emphasizes, and explains it thoroughly and often in many places, and you can glimpse down to the bottom real quick if you want to see some of those places, in many places it is truly by no means to be passed by in silence and indifference, as though that is useless, whatever it may be, which cannot be set forth without offense and loss of faith. Provided it is taught and explained thoughtfully and according to the pattern of divinely inspired scripture, namely as much as it has revealed to us about this puzzling mystery. And the chief passages that are found in Scripture regarding this article should be familiar to pastors, and there's like 24 of them or something. So, election is, as uh, Chemnitz states here, if viewed from a certain angle, it is a sort of puzzling mystery. Namely, how it is, this touches on the crux theologorum, the cross of the theologians, how it is that some are saved and not others. How it is that God elects to salvation, but doesn't, by that very act, or de facto, elect to damnation. Those are mysteries, and they're mysteries because reason makes certain conclusions that would seem to be sure and certain, But then scripture contradicts those conclusions. For example, the statement that God, before the foundation of the world, predestined some to be saved, seems to our reason to be the de facto assertion that the rest he damns. Makes simple, reasonable sense. But the problem with that reasonable conclusion is it's contrary to the scriptures. It's say, for example, that God desires all to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. All right, so viewed from a certain angle, as Chemnitz rightly acknowledges, the doctrine of predestination or election, no distinction here between those terms, is a puzzling mystery. But again, as we're going to see next week, here's your cliffhanger, rightly and properly understood the doctrine of election is of the greatest comfort to us as Christians. And for that reason, even if it scandalizes some people, even if it causes us to marvel and puzzle over the mystery, even if it causes us to furrow our brows and be like, I just don't get it, is it still worth it? Yes, it's still worth it because of the absolute certainty and comfort it gives us. And again, touching on the doctrine of justification, God, before you were ever made, before you ever did any good or bad, claimed you as his own, and promised to save you, predestined or elected you unto salvation. What does that do to the necessity of your works? It's exclude, they're utterly excluded. 
But the beauty of that, too, is what does that do to your sins or anything else, right? It's God's decision. It's not contingent upon you. That's of the utmost comfort to us as Christians. And as we're going to see in the scriptures, that's how it's used. That's how this doctrine is used, as a comfort unto Christians. In fact, um, if you're interested, the Book of Concord, again, um, text that Chemnitz had a very big part of, the Formula of Concord, Solid Declaration, Article 11 is on the doctrine of election. And for my money, it's the most pastoral and the most comforting of all the articles in the Formula of Concord. It's wonderful. It's not to say it's without its puzzling and mysterious aspects, but it is nonetheless extremely comforting because it's done in the proper and biblical sense. We'll talk more about that in the weeks to come. The Lord be with you.